Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness, as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by an academic who doesn't mince her words. You might know her from the BAFTA-winning Channel 4 documentary, The School That Tried to End Racism, Professor Nicola Rollock. She's Professor of Social Policy and Race at King's College London, a government advisor and widely read contributor to publications including The Guardian, The FT and Vogue. She's also the author of a new book, The Racial Code, Tales of Resistance and Survival. Professor Rollock, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate your time. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you uh, to tell us maybe a little bit about yourself and how you decided to become an academic. What was your pathway into academia? Well, first of all, Miriam, thank you so much for the invitation to join you on your podcast. Um, look, I don't think that's a straightforward question. I didn't have any big plan or ambition to be an academic per se. My first degree is in psychology and I did psychology and German during my first year of undergraduate study. Um, German was impossibly difficult, so I dropped it. And I didn't actually have a clear plan after my undergraduate. Um, I did think about doing an, um, a further qualification as a educational psychologist or a clinical psychologist. But by the time I finished my undergraduate study, I was feeling a little bit disillusioned by education. And when I say education, I mean in particular higher education. So I went to the University of Liverpool in the 90s before it was the European City of Culture. And it was quite a barren place. You could see that it needed investment, that it needed that support. Um, and I felt that quite a lot as a young black woman experiencing a city outside of London. And what it highlighted to me was that I had taken for granted and not really thought about the extent to which London was mixed in terms of class and also uh, in terms of ethnicity. And I hadn't really factored in how I took for granted the ability to be able to access hairdressers, black hairdressers, to be able to access parties, which was obviously very important at that young age, playing the kind of music that I was interested in, to be even able to access shops that were selling Caribbean food. And even though as an 18, 19, 20, 21 year old, I didn't cook a lot of Barbadian food or Caribbean food, which is where my family's from Barbados, I took for granted that it was on my doorstep. It wasn't on my doorstep in Liverpool, and I found that quite difficult. And, and so, you, and, and so just, just to explain, so you asked me about my, my career. I left university and I um, worked in almost every high street shop known to 
mankind. Um, and that got to a point where I thought, okay, Nicola, you don't know what you want to do exactly, but as a minimum, you should probably keep your finger in the pie, as it were. So I applied for and was successful in securing an appointment in the psychology department at Birkbeck College, working directly with um, an academic as he's kind of slight personal assistant, research assistant, just general support. And it was during that period that I made the decision to do a PhD. And that came because I used to sit in on supervisions with masters, with his masters and PhD students. And sometimes I would be part of the conversation. So that led me to think, well, if I'm part of this conversation and also given guidance on occasion to these students, surely I can do this too. Uh, yes. And, and so that led you to do your PhD. Was it also there that you decided to do it? Uh, did you do it at Birkbeck as well? You stayed in London? I definitely stayed in London. I What I did was I wrote a proposal and it's really interesting how you have an insight into the process because you're now working within the sector. So I wrote a two page proposal um, and I was really interested in the way that government policy and academic research at the time focused on black academic failure, disadvantage, underachievement. And my thought was that that wasn't my experience and nor was it the experience of many people I knew. And so I became curious about why we only talk about underachievement in policy terms. And is there something that we can learn about black underachievement by looking at those students who do well? And so I wrote a two page proposal and I shared it with the person I was working for. I also shared it with some other colleagues in the psychology department. And I also shared it with um, a David Gilborn, now Emeritus Professor David Gilborn, um, who was at the Institute of Education. And I identified him because I asked myself, of those books that I'm reading around this subject area, which, which, which books are connecting with me the most which ones are whether I'm connecting in agreement or disagreement which ones are resonating or leading me to have particular thoughts and questions which are stimulating those thoughts and questions and his was one of the names on the list so I approached him and asked him whether he would give me feedback initially on the proposal and subsequent to that I asked him whether he would supervise me he did initially say no um but Obviously, he couldn't say no to me um, because it was such an amazing proposal and I was going to be such an amazing student. <laughs> and, and of course, he's he's a former guest on the show. We've had him on before. So, yes, we uh, share uh, the uh, in fact, yeah, he's, he's an incredible uh, voice. So, yes, I completely understand why you would have wanted to have him as a supervisor. Um, so you, since then, you've obviously written and spoken a lot about race, racism in higher education. And I read uh, that uh, or I listened actually into one of your lectures where you were talking about the fact that black students are most likely to drop out compared to 
all other students and you were co comparing quite a few different measurements of the experiences of um, black and also widely more widely students of color within the university system why is it that we still have this statistic I mean I know that lecture was 2017 so I don't know if that's still the case but um, do black students still have the highest rate of dropout and what do you attribute that to? So yeah, in the sector, they talk about that as a continuation. So the, the continuation rate for black students within higher education is the lowest across all ethnic groups. Now, that's both of interest and of concern to me, Miriam, because when you look at the data, we know that black students and black and minority ethnic students more broadly are attending university in quite high numbers and considerably higher than their white counterparts. So they get there, they get in, and we can have a conversation about which types of universities they tend to go to. We know that they're more likely to go to the non-elite. So in other words, not the Russell Group set of universities, and that has implications for what happens subsequent to university life. But just scooting back to your question, I think it's really interesting that they get there in the first place so we can identify that as a keenness, a willingness to learn, to advance themselves educationally. But something happens in, if we take as our model, the, three, the conventional three-year undergraduate programme, something happens within that three-year period that almost, if you will, changes their mind. And so what we see is that they're most likely to drop out at the end of year one. Now, some arguments, and let's be fair to present a range of arguments here, would say that they are a demographic that is least prepared for higher education study. So they don't necessarily know what to expect. They're not ready for higher education study. So that's what some people argue. Some people say... Oh, I, I'm, I'm presenting that as, a, as one argument, but I'm also going to present some other arguments to that. Okay. Um, so others would say, and this would include myself, that actually, let's pan out for a moment. And let's pan out and also incorporate into our thinking, our analysis, an understanding of what's going on with black academics. And what we see is that similar sets of discomforts or experiences that both groups go through. So they're both um, experience challenges in terms of progression within higher education, for example. We know that black academics are least likely to become professors compared to any other ethnic group. And then if we take that thinking and map that onto black students, we know that by the end of their degree, there is what used to be called an achievement gap, but we now call a degree awarding gap. In other words, when we look at the percentage of students who are most likely to achieve a good degree, that is a first or two one, uh, black students are least likely to achieve at that level. So from, from, from my perspective, we have to ask ourselves, what is going on within the four walls of the institution where we see these discomforts, these experiences evident for black students and also mirrored in the experiences of uh, black faculty. 
So what are some of the issues that you that you've identified? Because obviously that's, you know, for, for you know, anyone considering uh, university, uh, maybe there's things to look out for, you know, uh, in terms of the university. Is it is it something to do with the cities that is in? I mean, I know you obviously talk about your personal experience in the book early on of a discomfort with a certain um, should we say the, the culture at the university, the culture of, around drinking and going out? Um, is it to do, uh, you also talk obviously in the book also about um, the way that academics are undermined within the academic environment, um, uh, what people might call microaggressions. I know there's different viewpoints on the term, but, you know, slights or, 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 or um, attempts to um, undermine uh, academics or not recognize their full worth. So how would you define the problem? So in terms of if we're thinking about black students specifically for the moment, so in terms of black students, one of the, I mean, let's let's preface this by saying that sadly we still lack a substantive body of research that's focused on particular ethnic groups. Too often we're still looking at black and minority ethnic groups as a whole. And I think that has benefits, it does, but we also want to understand what the experiences are of particular ethnic groups within that within that category. And because we know that race and racism affects and plays out differently for different ethnic groups, we can't just homogenize or lump people together. So that I, I wanted to start by saying that. But it's also true that black students, and I would also say for this is the case for other minoritized groups tend to have additional responsibilities. So they might have caring responsibilities, for example. They might have to work alongside undergraduate study. So we can't take away the impact of that financial burden for a group of people who we know already are most likely to live in poverty in society. So that immediately is going to present a challenge. And if I might, just for a minute, Miriam, I remember myself when I was doing my undergraduate and uh, without disclosing my age, I was doing my undergraduate at a time when there were grants available mm -hmm. and I received grants, but I had to work every single weekend I remember working in Littlewoods, making bacon sandwiches at an ungodly hour on Saturday mornings. And in um, the holidays, again, I had to work in order to survive. So, and that was when we had grants available, yet alone now. And I think that's really important to stress that financial burden on this particular demographic. That what that means is, that you can't devote your entire mind and energy to study. And I think that's a really important um, issue that we pay insufficient attention to. But what I would also say is that we have to think about, the, as I stressed earlier, the context in which these students are studying. I have a PhD student who is exploring the possible impact of studying at this level when you don't see people who look like you. Okay, so we know that universities continue to grapple with issues of decolonization, of thinking in an anti-racist or racially just way. Now, that isn't just limited to 
context when we have the murder of George Floyd, those are struggles that have been going on for decades. But what we don't see is an imperative for universities to address this issue. We still leave this to individual um, leadership commitments, and I think that ought to change. Um, so yes, I think those three things, caring responsibilities, um, the challenges of finances, and also thinking about the culture of the environment in which students are operating. Um, I was uh, used to have a post at SOAS and, uh, you know, was part of the SOAS decolonising committee. And, and I can say from from, you know, even within that, it was very clear how complex it is, even when a group of academics come together and try and undertake it. There are different visions of what that should look like and um, all kinds of obviously processes that have to be formalised at the higher levels. I mean, I I think I was a bit bamboozled by just how complex change is within the bureaucracy of the of the academic system. And I think I think a lot of us might have underestimated what change would look like when you're talking about uh, structures of that magnitude and of that of that um, of that longevity. You know, SOAS is, is not a new institution the way it's been operating is the way it's been operating for a very long time. Things can change, I'm sure, but um, certainly not overnight. Yeah, and I think that's a really good and um, fundamental point. And it's one that unless you're part of the university system, you'll have no awareness of. And when you are working as a faculty member, you are very clear about the complexities. And I think sometimes and I think this is a fair thing to say, unless you're involved in particular movements and in the way that you've just described, I think it can look to students like there's obstruction just for the sake of obstruction. And sometimes that is the case. But I would also say as an academic of 25 odd years, universities are phenomenally slow at even the most basic of, chain, of, of changes. I recall seeing um, on Twitter, I follow some of these kind of um, spoof accounts about the academy, which caused me all manner of delight. But there is a tweet which um, I, I apologise to listeners now because I'm not going to get the wording correct and therefore I might lose some of the essence of it. But it said something like um, an academic wanted to change a single word in a student handbook. They submitted their application for change to three committees. They made 10 pledges or presentations to explain why they wanted this. They sacrificed a goat and the request was denied. And actually, in my view, that's not an exaggeration. And it, 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 it explains why I, for example, am attached to King's College, and it's not particular to King's College, but attached to a university on a part-time basis and then run my own business. And I do that, people ask me, well, what do you do? And I say, well, I do all the things that I want to do as an academic, but the bureaucracy gets in the way. Yes, I definitely have heard that from, from other academics. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about um, 
because obviously you're not just an academic that stays in academia. You're one of these academics that also comes into, you know, the public arena, in the media, uh, you know, in, in many ways, the front line, some might argue. Um, and I wanted to ask you what your experience has been of speaking about race and racism in the media, in the public domain, and what I'm going to call mainstream, because you know, academia, some might say, you know, it gets sort of derisively called the ivory tower world, you know, uh, you can you can speak obviously to many people who have many of the same assumptions and, and you can have quite complex or not always, <laughs> but complex discussions, let's say. Um, whereas I, my sense is that a lot of the conversations around race and racism in the media are so, I'm going to use the word bastardized, uh, simplified, uh, to, to the point of rendering things that need so much nuance um, into uh, like almost a caricature. And, and so I'm wondering, yeah, what's your experience of, of kind of moving into that realm and the conversations you found there? Well, what I would say, I mean, first of all, that's a great question. And what I would say first and foremost is that it isn't the case that other academics agree with you. Um, and I would say my experience as a black female scholar specialising in racial justice, um, I have experienced a number of challenges in the sector and challenges from those colleagues, those white colleagues who would self-identify. And let me just rephrase that so I can give it due emphasis, who through their own assessment would say that they are liberal and committed to issues of racial justice. Now that point is really, really crucial because it's not from my assessment as a black woman and indeed as a specialist in the area, it's from their own judgment about their competency, which connects quite intimately, as uh, listeners will know, with some of the tenets of whiteness in that you can make this decision all by yourself. Um, about a subject um, of which you do not possess expertise. So I, I just want to just make sure that that's really clear. But in terms of speaking beyond that space, when you introduced me, you used words that I have previously used to describe myself in relation to a particular presentation as not mincing my words. And I was really interested in that and I wanted to hold on to it rather than ask you to change that description. Because what happens is that uh, there are particular sets of words that are attributed to me. So the word frank gets attributed to me quite a lot. And also the word challenging. And I'm really interested in that. And I talk about this a little bit in my book, The Racial Code, because in my life and from my experience, both as a black woman and as a black female scholar, what I'm saying is not frank or challenging. What I'm saying challenges the prevalent view about race and racism. That's what it's doing. But, but doesn't frank mean just honest? The, the, the way it's said is that it, there's almost a disproportionate honesty. Oh, right. OK. So that's like, well, Nicola, you're so very frank. So there's right. an emphasis. You're, you're, you're being more candid and, than we would ever imagine. 
Well, I, I guess speaking uh, on popular truths will inherently have you deemed uh, frank in that sense. I'm trying to emphasize the frank in, in the sense that you give it. But, um, you know, I, I but but I hear you. I mean, it's a continuity of the sort of, um, you know, the, the, the difficult black woman trope that we often hear rolled out for, you know, any black woman that speaks out about her experiences, which obviously you detail in the book in in a number of different spheres of life, right? Um, yeah. But but um but but so you know obviously you you have to contend with that. So already sort of being labelled before you uh, even speak uh, as as almost like a a prep, I suppose, for the audience. Like watch out, uh, watch out. Frank words are coming your way. Um, but but what about the conversation itself? Do you feel? that you're able to have the necessary conversations in that space? Because I'd re be really happy to hear that was the case. So look, conversations about race generally are difficult. And let me qualify that. Conversations about race with those racialized as white who have not done work on themselves on themselves and who've not been thinking about and trying to enact anti-racist principles is generally difficult and it's made all the more difficult because of the point that i made earlier in that you have quite a significant demographic of white people i'm not talking about those at the very far right of the spectrum i'm not talking about those I'm talking about the kind of the bulk in the middle who we might consider just for want of a, a an easy phrase liberal okay and by and large those people by and large consider themselves to be well-meaning of course and they would draw out particular examples of that well-meaningness if i can frame it like that and some of those examples might include well i get it because i'm a woman i get it because I'm from working class background. I get it because my best friend's black. I get it because my grandchild is mixed race. Those things are of note, but they're not sufficient to qualify you as someone who gets the issues. And actually what we're missing or what's missing in the dialogue and some of the dialogues I have with colleagues in particular on this issue is both inside the sector and outside, are some of the fundamental tools of what we in common parlance talk about as white allyship. Okay, and that is humility. The ability to begin by saying, look, I don't know about this. Actually, this subject makes me uncomfortable. And because it makes me uncomfortable, I'm gonna close my mouth <laughs> and I'm going to listen and I'm gonna go away and I'm going to do some reading and I'm going to do some thinking. And I'm going to see if I can identify behaviors that I do that are perhaps similar to other white people that might be supporting the oppression of uh, racially minoritized groups. But that doesn't tend to happen or that happens quite rarely. Mm. And what we see instead is a steadfast commitment to a self-assigned label of allyship and then the playing out of the very behaviours that hold up whiteness and therefore racism. So to come back to your question, 
actually my conversations inside the academy um, some of them are highly undesirable and when I was a full-time uh, employee caused me a manner uh, or number of distress because you're entering the dialogue from different places but with someone who over exaggerates their competence when you know that they're not competent mm -hmm. on this subject. Outside, most of my engagements outside, I choose the clients that I work with. And that makes a significant difference to the nature of the conversations that I have. In terms of the more policy uh, arena, um, by and large, I tend to be approached for my strategic and analytical skills so they are welcomed that different perspective is welcomed um, or if I'm an advisor whether to an individual or to an organization for the most part that alternative perspective when I'm identifying this is what you're missing when you're telling me that um, your black and minority ethnic staff are more likely to leave your institution compared to your white counterparts. When you're telling me you're not actually collating the data, when you're telling me that um, that demographic is most likely to experience grievances or to sign up as sick, you have to pay attention to individuals. And let me rephrase that just to drive home the point. If I, let's use me as our hypothetical, as our example, if I am in a workplace and you, I'm working, reporting to you, Miriam, and I sign off sick, if you are responsible and you are paying attention to the wider literature around the experiences of black employees, where we know that they're underrepresented at senior levels, for example, um, what you will say is, let me check that there's nothing wider going on. Let me check that this is just sickness or there might be actually some other issues that are relevant to race. Mm. You don't say, well, she's just an, another individual and I'm colorblind. You have to pay attention to context. To pay attention to context and data, the research evidence today for your own organization, then what we know more broadly about the patterns of um, experiences of those who look like me in the workplace but then also historically in terms of the fact that those patterns have been repeated over time mm -hmm. and what I would say that we're very poor at in this country is focusing on those patterns we pretend that we are just in a neutral space and that we can be objective when in fact the disproportionality or the underrepresentation that we see across all sectors is mirrored yesterday. It's mirrored last month, last year, and for decades. And so when I'm coming to your, your, your I'm giving you a very long answer to your question, but I think it's all relevant in that we often engage in conversation about race in a blinkered and simplistic way. And my role is to take those blinkers away, which is why I get called Frank and, so very challenging on these issues. Um, well, I personally welcome both of those attributes uh, and, and try and foster them in myself. So more, more please of, of frankness and challenging. But, um, I, it, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking, because um, I, I do like to tie 
um, uh, the discussions that we have on the podcast in, into pop culture. Uh, and as you were speaking, I was thinking about um, a quite high profile um, uh, mixed race female uh, who uh, was sick, uh, taken sick, um, and the wider institution or the firm, as they otherwise are known, chose to ignore uh, the wider context, apparently, of where that sickness was happening. And of course, you know, for those of you wondering why I'm speaking in code, I am, of course, referring to Meghan Markle um, and the fact that, you know, when she was uh, living in the UK uh, as part of the royal family uh, with Harry, she, uh, you know, became suicidal. Uh, and in fact, her, her mental health had deteriorated to such an extent that, that you know, they were forced to leave in many ways is, is what we've now heard. But it, it seemed very apparent that there was there were attempts to kind of sound the alarm about you know her not being well her not being okay and and that not being listened to in the sort of wider context of the media frenzy around Megan had has had, was being ignored or was being sort of minimized is there you know do you have any analysis for us of sort of the treatment that Megan's been gone through. What does it tell us, not just about the royal family, because actually since then we've seen in recent days, you know, following the Queen's funeral, Megan going out and just regular bystanders, white bystanders, being really offensively rude to her. Um, what does Megan's story tell us about race in the UK? So look, I I am not someone who um tends to comment immediately on issues that are in the public arena um I try to adopt the approach that I tell my students to adopt which is with you're talking about the royal family um I'm an academic I want to understand before I reach a position so if I give a position it's us usually and I hope informed through understanding, through evidence, through data, through having spoken to people. And I'm very much aware that I am consuming, when it comes to the royal family and to Meghan Markle in particular, information secondhand. So information that comes through the lens of media. And I'm not wanting to be evasive, but I think that's a really important point. Um, I don't think we can deny that she has been besmirched and received a disproportionate amount of attention. I don't think we can deny that, but I have to place those words firmly against what I've just said. Um, and, and, you know, part of my role as an advisor is working with comms, often with comms teams, with institutions about how they pitch something to the media. So I have borne witness over my time to incidents that I am aware of the full details of because I'm working behind the scenes with X individual or X organization. But I've also then seen how that has been picked up on social media, misinterpreted, and also how that has been misread by certain corners of the press. So I think it's really important to lay that out. We live in a society that is extremely reactive. Um, and I also want to place really firmly alongside that, and we, we may not have time to talk about that to, this today, but the issue of well-being. As a black woman 
who has specialised in this area for, I think I said, 25 years, I have to be really vigilant about which parts of the news I pay attention to and go in deeply on, if you will, and which parts of the news I just keep an eye on and which parts of the news I may ignore. And when I say ignore, I mean keep a lighter eye on because it is impossible to remain sane, is my view, as someone specialised in this area when you are constantly bombarded by these issues. And I, I will come full circle to your specific comments about Meghan Markle. Um, and you have to, what people won't necessarily be aware of is that I'm working with organisations and individuals behind the scenes to deal with particular issues in that regard. But I also receive constantly, Miriam, emails and communications from people of colour, racially minoritised colleagues, people I don't know from this country and outside of this country, from within my sector and beyond my sector, asking for help. Mm. Setting out what sometimes are the most heart-wrenching stories, accounts, of incidents that they are going through at the hands usually of their employer. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, you would have seen that I gave evidence to the Women's and Equalities Select Committee in May on racial harassment in universities. And I will say what I said then. I recall one colleague sharing with me, a woman, I won't say more than that, how the experiences at the hands of her employer made her consider taking her own life. So in the context of that, I have to be mindful of how much I consume. But I, I, I do want to underscore the point that I began with, which is we are often consuming information secondhand and therefore ought not to immediately jump to conclusions and should always look to what we call in academic circles, triangulate. What that means is look for evidence from other sources that either support or refute what we imagined or thought to be true. Let me come back to Meghan Markle and make the point that, yes, it's clear, just given everything that I've said, I, I, I remember watching that video, I think it was from earlier this week, two days ago maybe. And again, I tried to watch it with the lens that I advise my students to. Don't take anything at face value. I can see what people are saying about the clip, but let's not jump to conclusions. And so what that meant is that I watched it probably five, six, seven times and I zoomed in because I didn't want to come to a position without being clear about what I was seeing. My ideal as an academic would to be to find that woman and speak to her. Of course, yeah. In the absence of that, I will say this, it looks atrocious. And we have, it's difficult not to put that in the context of what I said earlier, about at least the experiences of black women in wider mainstream, we use the word mainstream often as code for white, but wider white society. Now, let me say this. It seems to me 
that that woman, that white woman, has bought into whatever she has consumed from the press. Because you don't, I'm, I'm making an assumption here, so please correct me if I'm wrong, you don't know Miriam, excuse me, you don't know Meghan Markle. I don't know Meghan Markle. I've been in the same space as her, but I don't know her. I've not talked to her. So I can't come to any conclusions about whether she's a good, bad or in-between person. I can only go on what I have seen. And what I saw was someone turn their back, keep their arms closely pressed to their body and give a bad look to this woman who is of mixed heritage. That makes me ask questions. But again, it doesn't look good in the context of what we know, A, albeit secondhand about Meghan Markle's experiences broadly in this country, and then B, about what we know about the experiences of women of colour and specifically black women in this country. So for those who are listening who might not know the clip we're referring to, a clip went viral um, a few days ago. Uh, we're speaking now in, in mid-September um, of Meghan Markle going to speak to uh, a crowd of onlookers who'd come to um, lay down flowers uh, for uh, the Queen. Um, and uh, one particular lady, as Meghan Markle approached her, sort of, uh, as you clearly say, sort of folded her arms, sort of turned her back and had this sort of smirk, which, you know, a lot of people I was reading on, on social media, a lot of women in co of colour were saying, oh, we recognise that face. We recognise that body language. It's a sort of form of racial bullying that clearly um, resonated with, with a lot of people. Um, and of course, it feeds into a wider conversation of uh, you know why? Why it is that that in a nation that so often uh, uh, believes itself to be post-racial, and I'm certainly not suggesting that that's what the nation is, but but there's mm -hmm. so much uh, sort of a, a presentation of the UK as as a country that is somehow post-racial. Uh, we don't ask racialized people that question, but it's just announced. Um, and 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 that in this situation, uh, it seemed very much that the underlying ways in which uh, racism functions in this country, because it functions differently across countries, right? I mean, I, I'm, uh, you know, part French and, and French racism is very overt. French racism is is in your face. I mean, I've never seen subtle French racism. I'll be straight. I've just, it's, brutal. But English racism, British racism to me, always seems a little bit more British, a little bit more subtle, a little bit more in the eye or in the body language, or there's something a little bit more hidden about. Subversive. Yeah. I, I would wholeheartedly agree with you, Miriam. Um, that there is, and you know, this, this is why the name of my book, The Racial Code, because it's subversive. There's almost a veneer to it. Um, and you know, I, I, can, I can almost write the story around that if I were, I don't know, a prominent, slightly right of center journalist, for example. What I would say is, well, she just had her hands folded and maybe didn't feel like shaking Meghan Markle's hand. But the point is, that the way that racism operates in this country is that it is, it is subtle, it is pervasive, it is coded. And as someone who's racially minoritized and who grew up in this context, you learn very quickly that fact. 
and you need to learn and understand it as a matter of survival. Okay, and this is where, if you like, the fact that we are playing a game in this country. We don't call a spade a spade. We don't call racism racism. And this is where the madness of racism lies, if you will. So we have white people who I described earlier as maybe self-defining as liberal, who often say that actually I'm committed to a racially just agenda. At the same time, they pretend not to understand this more subtle form of racism, what we sometimes refer to as everyday racism. So this is not the racism of George Floyd, which is overt, explicit, and had clear and disastrous consequences. This is to do with judgments about one's competence. This is to do with dislike. This is to do with stereotyping, with tropes, with surprises. So to give listeners an example, a personal example, I recall submitting a report to a school about a visit I'd had to the school. They wanted a, just a summary of what my experiences were. And in the meeting, which had several people in the meeting, the head teacher held up the paper, so this document that I produced, by forefinger and thumb and held it aloft and slightly distant from her. And she said, well, the first thing that I have to say is that it's so incredibly well written. Oh God. Now you have to understand that I am a PhD. You're a professor, yes. Um, at the time I wasn't a professor, so you know, let, let us yeah. be. But I'm, I'm a PhD. Yeah. I was teaching at a Russell Group University. Yeah. So I teach people and mark their work. It is my job to be able to speak and write clearly. And I hope listeners would agree that I've been speaking clearly. I hope that is the case. <laughs> but wow. the point is that comment is made with the undertones of incredulity because the expectation is that I wouldn't be able to write so well. Mm -hmm. It becomes a point of note, of surprise. And therefore, in that act, serves to what we call other or to um, marginalise, to kind of push me to the edges of that conversation. I'm marked out as unusual. We have mm -hmm. a black person here who can write, Miriam. Imagine the shock. So the, the, the issues around this code, this the way that we play out racism in the UK, is that we have this pretense of not understanding what it looks like in everyday forms, while at the same time, white people are upholding the behaviours that keep racism intact. But yet, if I were, in that example, to point that out, actually, that was problematic. And that's called racial othering. What you've just done is a racial microaggression. Okay, you've given what appears to be a compliment, but in fact is a negative comment on my competence because you didn't expect it. Okay. And, and it's so worrying from a teacher in particular because we then can read into that that, you know, and, and particularly for any teachers who are listening, you know, that you're 
assumptions about black students and we know about kind of assumptions of underachievement among black students about rates of exclusion for you know not not just black but also mixed race students and so what what you're describing is sort of oh you know it, it sort of touches on a, on a real nerve as well within within a school environment because you know they, this is happening to you coming in as a very senior academic but there are young children and we know it's predominantly you know young black boys actually who you know will have those assumptions laid out and not have the phd to hand and not be able to uh you know even believe in themselves enough to know that actually they can do that and they do you know, they, there's no reason they couldn't achieve Absolutely. whatever it is that they're being assumed they can't. So that's 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 a, a heartbreaking, I think, example. And, and we've touched on education in the past in, in schools, but it seems like there are still really significant um, underlying assumptions uh, among educators which are failing um, students of colour. Um, I would agree. And if I just briefly jump in, and I, I would say that that pattern there's this pattern of expectations that I've laid out and the way that they are played out in the British context also exist within the workplace. Mm. So this isn't an explicit calling someone the N-word necessarily, because it mm. does happen, but what, how it plays out in the workplace are lower expectations about the extent to which you can achieve. So an appraisal you might meet all of the objective of your, of your appraisal but your line manager still doesn't want to give you the highest recommendation so they're looking for reasons to mark you down mm. you might even something as basic as applying for annual leave might be steeped in such complication compared with your white counterpart negotiating an increase in salary a promotion all of these acts are significant and we see them borne out in the statistics that show that black, in particular black people, are underrepresented at senior levels. And that's really important and an issue that we continue to miss. Now, we, we've spoken, um, and before we get onto the racial code, because I really want to talk about kind of what that means and how it how it kind of um, uh, is spoken or um, frames uh, the world in different contexts that in you give out give very uh, poignant examples in the book that that I'm sure a lot of people will relate to. Um, but I, I wanted to also to talk about kind of more uh, uh, less subtle uh, forms of racism because of course uh, you know you open the book with uh, you know uh, the the murder of Stephen Lawrence and, and of course the fact that you had worked on an assessment of uh, the McPherson report findings ten years. On and, and had found at that time that actually pretty much nothing had changed. Um, and of course, this month uh, we saw uh, the killing of uh, a young unarmed man, Chris Cabber, here in London. Uh, there have been big marches uh, across the capital and I'm sure across other cities uh, in support uh, of the family who, uh, you know, are, are raising very legitimate questions over why this uh, unarmed uh, man was killed uh, and the context around the investigation. Um, I know that a lot of people will think that a lot has changed since, you know, the the, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, has sort of taken the world down this, this, this beginning of a path of what some people call the racial reckoning. Um, but I wonder in the context of what we're seeing in, in the handling of this case, 
how far we have actually come in your view? Well, look, I don't think that we need to use the Chris Caber case as the entry point for how far we've come in the last couple of years. I will come to Chris Caber in a minute, but I, what I'm saying is we don't need to rely on that case um, for what I'm about to say. So in May 2020, we experienced or bore witness to the murder, the racist murder of the African-American George Floyd at the hands of a white police officer. And I was really struck by a few things. I was struck by the fact that white people often describe themselves and the moment as one of awakening around the horrors of racism. And that made me ask myself, where have you been? Where on earth have you been? Racism didn't start on the 25th of May, 2020. It's in your institution. The colleague, the black colleague that just passed you, or the South Asian one, they've experienced it. Your institution probably has very few people of colour on its board. Why? In this day and age, seriously, why? Some more progressive, if we can use that word, Miriam, institutions may have even carried out, I don't know, a survey or evaluation about the experiences of their black and minority ethnic staff and found that there were discomforts, points of unhappiness. It's there at your feet. And then I thought to myself, well, why, why is it that this murder has garnered quite so much attention, so much pouring out of grief, so much almost theatrical pouring out of grief? in a way that was actually quite disturbing for me and for others who looked like me. And we saw, and you know, I'm not making this up, that white colleagues, white people, went out of their way to buy almost every conceivable book that was about race at that time. And I thought, well, what on earth is going on? And it occurred to me, not just that those white people had not been paying attention when people like me were talking, when young people of colour and white uh, people were talking about racism. But it also occurred to me that that incident happened at a particular moment in time. It happened when we were trapped within our homes, Miriam. It happened when we were trapped within our homes in fear of this, un this as yet unknown pandemic. Mm. COVID. None of us had experienced something like this. We were in global shutdown in effect. So what I am struck by is that we were almost um, forced, compelled to consume this video because we weren't going to the theatre or to the cinema or having dinner with friends or going to work. We were forced because most of us were engaging with each other, either on the telephone or online. We were forced to watch it. And not only were we forced to, our act one 
we were primed. Our act one was the situation with um, the bird watcher and the white woman in um, Central Park, which happened on the same day. But most of us saw that first. So in other words, that was our warm up act, if you will. For those who don't recall, that was the uh, white woman who called the police on a black man who was bird watching in the park. It was because he he wouldn't. Is it because he wouldn't? She asked him to move or something. I mean, it was ridiculous. It, it was obviously a situation where she felt that she could call the police on him for just existing in that space. And of course, it's in a country where there was a time not that long ago where being black in a public space could be a crime um, and, and continues to be a, a potential source of death, as we then saw and, and had seen before. So sorry, I just in case anyone was couldn't couldn't quite remember the, the bird watching video. Yes. And if, if, if listeners are interested in um looking that up if perhaps you weren't aware of it um the the man was called christian cooper and um the white woman's called amy cooper and the reason it garnered such attention again it was filmed the black man the african-american man filmed it on his on his uh, phone and, and then shared it on social media but was the way in which the white woman exaggerated the idea of his being a threat when he was standing meters away from her and not only did she exaggerate but she called the police on him and so that i describe as the warm-up act if you will to the horror of the george floyd murder that we subsequently witnessed and i think that's that's very very concerning so to bring this full sweep and bring it closer to where we are today the question really is, has there been a change in the two years, two and a half years since Floyd was murdered? And let's take it just before the point of Chris Cabber being murdered. I think it really depends what your markers for progress and success are. I'm very clear. My markers for progress and success is that we won't any longer see an underrepresentation of black and minority ethnic groups at senior levels in the workplace, whether that's policing, academia, uh, teaching, whichever sector it is, um, um, uh, government, housing, we won't, we will no longer see that underrepresentation. That's the first point. I have to connect that with the fact that representation alone is not sufficient. We want to see a advanced understanding of racial justice amongst those people of colour, those racially minoritised groups who are in those senior positions. And of course, I'm referencing here the recent changes to the cabinet where we've seen for the first time a significant number of black and uh, Asian uh, colleagues. Representation matters but it's not just about the colour of one's skin, it's about the acts that one engages in to advance greater equity for people who look like you. And we fail again in our simplistic discussions of race and racism in this country to incorporate that in our analysis. But obviously, because I'm frank, 
I shall do so. <laughs> well, we, we thank you very much for doing that. I'm conscious of time, but I really wanted to, I know you wanted to read uh, a segment of the book. And I also just wanted to ask you, uh, obviously, about the title, The Racial Code. Um, for people who are wondering, what does the racial code mean? Well, in many ways, we've spoken to some of this already. We've spoken about the fact, Miriam, that in this country, racism, everyday racism, is subtle. You almost can't grab it by the hand. And often it's delivered with a smile. Or it might be delivered by not shaking someone's hand and turning it back on them. It might be delivered in um, the fact that, and if I take my own example, having to fight from the most basic things when your white counterparts don't have to. And to give you an example from my own research into the experiences of black female professors, I remember one professor saying to me, actually, I knew that they were going to make my life difficult. And I saw white male and white female colleagues achieving professorship with one book manuscript and sometimes none to their name. But because my experience had been one of having to constantly prove myself, I decided I would wait until I had three book manuscripts to my name to minimise, notes. I'm using the word minimise, not eliminate, the possibility that they will push back on that element. So the word code is about the fact that as a black woman, let's use me again as an example, I know racism exists, but the rules of this society say that I can't say that out loud, okay? And we also live in a context where, as I said earlier, most white people say, well, I'm liberal, I'm not racist, my child is mixed race, while they're still engaging in behaviours that are discriminatory to black and other racially minoritized groups. And there's another and, um, what happens is that if I, anyone of color comes forward to say, actually, I'm sorry, what you just did was undermining to black and brown people. What happens is that it becomes denied. You become the problem as the black person. And all of this is unspoken and it's subtle. I know it exists as a black person, but we're not allowed to name it. And that's the maddening feature of everyday racism. And that, that code, those rules that I've just described is what the racial code is about. Thank you. Thank you. So did you, because um, I, I also don't want to hold you up beyond your time. Do you want to read um, a section of the book or should we just go to the quick fire round? Um, well, I would love to be able to read a bit of it, but it'd be great to also discuss it with you. And I don't think we have time to do both, do we? OK, <laughs> um, well, uh, it's kind of up to you. We can definitely take a few minutes to do that. If you'd like to, I'd be more than happy to. Let, let's let's read it if you've got yeah. time to also um, have a brief chat about it. So yeah. I'm reading from chapter three, which is called Members Only. And just for listening, some very brief context. What I've done is I've pulled together research evidence, statistics um, and reports, and I've looked at them to try and identify what are some of the themes that I might be able to write about. So the book is non-fiction, but 
I use fiction. I've made up stories around key themes. And this particular theme is about social class. So mm. rather than talking in very boring academic way about social class, which I have done elsewhere, if people are, are interested, what I've done is I've made up a story around it. And this particular story is set in a private members club. And for those of you who might buy the book, I'm reading from page 60. And our protagonist is someone that I've called Miles. He's mixed race. He's incredibly well dressed. He has a suit that was tailor made for him on Savile Row. And he's been invited to a reception at this private members club. He's been introduced and he's just standing, taking in the scene. So, who do we have here then? Miles swallowed an internal sigh and reached out to shake the hand of the gentleman who had positioned himself before him. Miles Walker, very good to meet you. And you are? Digbeth Winthorpe Brown, the man announced. I've been a member here for over 30 years. My father was a member and his father before him. Trying to encourage my son to join works in the city as a lawyer, but he's still thinking about it, whatever that means. What did you say you did for a living? Miles detested such shows of masculine pomposity, especially those weighed down by an unflinching privilege that the privileged refused to acknowledge or perhaps just didn't care about. I'm a lawyer, actually, as well. Oh? Digbeth Winthorpe Brown turned to face Miles full on and peered at him inquiringly. And where do you practice? Perhaps I've heard of it. He smiled benignly. Perhaps you have, Miles responded, grown irritated by Winthorpe Brown's arrogant condescension and then becoming irritated in turn that he was allowing this man to annoy him. I've just moved to Ashcroft and Boverty. He had to think of a way to extract himself from this man's clutches. Ashcroft and Boverty? You mean on Fleet Street? Digbeth's voice rose ever so slightly in surprise. Miles decided to turn the conversation on its head, play with this ignorant git. Oh, so you know it. He allowed the incredulity in his voice to match Digbeth's. Yes, Ashcroft and Boverty, ranked second in this year's Legal 500. You must have heard of it. Digbeth Winthorpe Brown's nose twitched. The smile faded. He was clearly put out not just by the question, but by Miles's sudden command of the conversation. However, an unhealthy concoction of um, a profoundly insecure childhood, mummy and daddy issues, and the extremely privileged schooling, Eton followed by Oxford, and the comforts of wealth, generational, meant that humility and any degree of self-reflection were entirely out of the question. Well, of course I've heard of it. Yes, good law firm, very good. He studied Miles. Well, he mused eventually with the air of one used to being listened to and equally accustomed to paying little attention to the views of others. 
I can't say I have much time for those positive discrimination initiatives, all this grouping people together, he waved his hand dismissively, because of what they look like. I was at some talk the other day and some young black, black, well, one of those activist types referred to me as white. Well, I can tell you, I gave her a pretty damn good piece of my mind. I told her, you of all people should understand why I object to labelling people in such a way. He leant in towards Miles. You'll understand what I mean. You seem like a pretty decent type of chap. Uh. <laughs> well, thank, well, thank you, you Sherry. Sherry. Um, You're very welcome. We, um, we obviously, oh, just off the back of that, you know, you'll understand what I mean. We we assume this is the, the middle class code now talking once he's been uh, initiated or recognised as potentially uh, belonging the the code of not seeing of claiming not to see race has to dominate yes absolutely but it's also the feigned smile that he offers miles it's also the air of authority the imparting of information that wasn't asked for but just assumed that that is of, of relevance or of importance but it's also about and this is really crucial a certain status a, a superior status over miles, what we might think of as a marking out of territory. So mm -hmm. these are signals that miles is not welcome. This is not said explicitly, but they are signals. They are part of the racial code. And, and actually to tie into how I think of whiteness, the demarcation of whiteness, right? The demarcation of that line in the sand, which, which side do you what you know which side are you choosing to stand on not that you get to choose but you can choose to adhere to the code um or you can choose to confront it which clearly gets you called frank and challenging <laughs> um i wanted to uh you you, you wanted us to um kind of maybe i know that you've got this uh, section in the beginning where you uh, encourage questions um as people read through the book um, was that was there a reason you wanted to direct people to um, the ways in which you want them to engage with the book? Yeah, so just for listeners, I, I've included probably about 10 questions that form part of the introduction, as Miriam says. And um, they're questions to, to support and guide the reading and engagement with the points that I'm making. So in the chap in the extract that I've just read, for example, Digbeth is actually wrong. Positive discrimination is unlawful. So what I do is I include a footnote to explain that and what he should be referring to instead. But I also explain why what he said is problematic. And I'm inviting the reader to ask questions because I think there are white people who actually genuinely are struggling with this and they want to know how can they improve their understanding and so what I hope I'm doing by offering those questions is saying these are the, some of the things you should be or can think about while you're reading it you can just read the book without thinking about the questions but the questions are points of reflection how do you feel when you read this do you know anyone who is like this 
How do you feel? How do you think you experience it maybe as a white person? How do you think maybe say I would experience something like that? If we were to swap the roles round and that was a black person speaking, do you think it's possible for a black person to say something like that? So it's really to kind of tease apart and ask those critical questions around race in the way that we don't. You talked earlier, Miriam, you, you posed a question to me, which is around the ways in which we're quite simplistic as a society and certainly across media in our discussions around race. What I'm inviting readers, white and people of colour to do when they read this book is to have a space of reflection to support their own thinking around the issues. Um, it's interesting when you were saying if we if we sort of um, swapped racial identities, I think that if uh, Digbeth was actually black and Miles was white, that Digbeth would be perceived as aggressive in yeah. that interaction. Yeah. Um, uh, aggressive and overbearing. Um, in, a way, in a way that I don't think, uh, you know, that I perceive him when I'm reading it as a white person, which is, is obviously something to, uh, to, to take note on. Um, are, are you happy for us to jump to our quick fire round? Sure. Yes. So quick fire round is quick fire questions with quick fire answers, if you can. Um, First question, what is your definition of whiteness? It's the behaviours, assumptions, so behaviours and assumptions that keep white people in a position of power. What is the root of racism? I don't think that's a simple answer, but we can, in very simplistic terms, see some of the patterns of that racism in the, in the uh, slave trade. So the ways in which um, race is invented to hold up the slave trade. We can see some of the roots there. What is racial justice? Racial justice is an imagining of a world where there are equal experiences for racially minoritized groups and equal outcomes or similar outcomes across all facets of society. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? So um, is there such a thing as a post-racial world, world? No. Is it achievable? I have my doubts. Desirable? Absolutely desirable. Um, absolutely. But we are talking here about power. And I, I know you want short answers, but we haven't touched on this and I'll be very, very brief. When we talk about power in the context of whiteness, we're talking about the power that white people have, irrespective of their class position. So white people hold power because of the colour of their skin, because we have a hierarchy of race of racial difference that exists, even though we now know, it's been debunked, that there is no such thing as distinct racial groups. Racism stays alive because we still operate with this code, we still operate as though we have distinct racial groups. So white people have power because they position themselves at the top of that racial hierarchy. 
Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes. Uh, what's next from you, uh, Dr. Rollock? Where can people find out more about your work, buy your book? So I will correct you, it's Professor Rollock, and that was long fought for, so I will correct you on, in that regard. Please, yeah. Uh, people can find my book online. You can go to penguin.co.uk. You can search the Rachel Code Rollock. It is available, publication day is the 6th of October, but it's available for, um, it's available for um, purchase now, um, both pre and post, obviously. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, look, Professor Rollock, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. Thank you, Miriam.